Welcome to ONS Energy Talks. Uh, my name is Inger Johanna Stenberg, and together with my guest here today, I wanted to give you some insight into one of the many things happening in our energy sector today. Today, we are uh, so lucky that we're diving into offshore wind, and my guest, uh, Giles Dixon, Dixon in Wind Europe, he will try to give us uh, some answers, maybe even some fun facts worth noting about offshore wind. So, welcome to you, Giles. Thank you, Inga. Uh, first, let's get some basic facts down in our uh, virtual fact box, if you may. What is Wind Europe? Wind Europe is the industry body that is the voice and the face of wind energy across the whole of Europe. We talk to governments and we try and get the best policies and regulations to support the expansion of wind energy. And in this picture, what is offshore wind? Is that all you do or is it uh, one of the parts? It's just one of the parts. We do offshore wind and onshore wind, yeah? And most of the wind we have in Europe today is onshore. Offshore wind is 3% of all the electricity we consume in Europe today, and wind energy in total is 15% of all of our electricity. So let's three uh, percent. That's not much, but there are a lot of plants. Um, oh yeah, indeed there are. <laughs> yeah, and where do we find uh, if if we'll focus on the offshore wind? Uh, then where do we find that for the most part? Okay, eighty percent of the offshore wind we have today in Europe is in the North Sea. The North Sea will continue to dominate offshore wind, but we'll see more and more offshore wind farms in the Baltic in the Celtic Sea, the Irish Sea, the Atlantic, and in the Mediterranean as well. It's taking off across the whole of Europe now. And how much money are we talking about to make these projects happen? Yeah, okay. So last year, Europe uh, invested in total 17 billion euros in new offshore wind farms. Now, that 17 billion euros buys five gigawatts of new offshore wind farms. Okay. Today, across the whole of Europe, we have 28 gigawatts of offshore wind farms. So uh, 28 gigawatts, what is, what is that? And uh, how does it fit into the broader context of offshore wind? Yeah. So a country such as Germany today has around 100 gigawatts of electricity generation capacity across, uh, you know, coal, uh, still a bit of nuclear in Germany, uh, gas, uh, wind, and uh, solar. Um, so 28 gigawatts is is in that context. The 28 gigawatts will rise to 135 gigawatts of offshore wind in Europe by 2030. Today, the 28 gigawatts produces 3% of Europe's electricity. By 2050, offshore wind could be producing up to 30% of Europe's electricity. So it's quite a it's it it's a sum, but it's not a big big lump of our energy consumption. So today it's fifteen percent of all the electricity we consume in Europe. By twenty fifty, the EU want wind to be one half of all of the electricity we consume in Europe. Which companies are the front runners in this? Okay, so you have lots of electricity utilities that have invested heavily, continue to invest heavily in offshore wind, Ersted, Vattenfall, Equinor, Iberdrola, EDF, RWE, and many others. And then you have 
three manufacturers of offshore wind turbines in Europe, uh, led by uh, Siemens Gamesa uh, and Vestas, and also uh, we have General Electric making offshore wind turbines in Europe. So uh, many familiar names I uh, hear. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, this uh, this concludes our little fact box with a listing of all the facts. I think it's uh, useful for us to know uh, before we dive a little deeper into this. Let's talk more about the status of offshore wind in Europe today. Where where uh, you mentioned it briefly? Where is the major potential? Yeah, there is huge potential for further growth in the North Sea. Uh, we will see a big expansion in the Baltic Sea. Poland is going to start building offshore wind farms this decade. Okay, We will see more offshore wind in France, both in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. And we will see offshore wind starting to grow across southern Europe. When we do offshore wind in the Mediterranean and in much of the Atlantic, it will be floating offshore wind. Most of the offshore wind we've done so far in Europe is what we call bottom-fixed offshore wind, where the foundations have a physical connection to the seabed. But floating wind energy technology has now come of age, thanks not least to the efforts of Equinor and other Norwegian players. And Norway will play a key role in the industrial development and the supply chain for floating offshore wind. But we, um, it's not without uh, controversial uh, or controversy uh, building and developing wind power in, in general. And especially when you have bottom fixed, it will be closer to shore, of course. How is that uh, with floating wind? Um, do we uh, expect to see the same type of controversy? Uh, by developing that? Yeah, we shouldn't overstate the controversy here. Yeah. I mean, first of all, some key facts. How far from the shore are these offshore wind farms? If we look at the three gigawatts of new offshore wind farms that Europe built in 2021, their average distance from shore was 26 kilometers. Okay. The offshore wind farms are getting larger. Their average size now is around 900 megawatts, and they're getting further away from the shore. Okay. Now, whenever you develop an offshore wind farm, you need to engage the relevant local communities very carefully. And that includes the uh, fishing industry, the fishing communities, the military interests, the environmental uh, stakeholders. All of these people need to be uh, uh, engaged very carefully. And we need to explain to them all the benefits of offshore wind and how they can benefit uh, themselves from offshore wind. You know, it contributes a great deal to the economy and to local communities. There are many coastal communities around Europe that were in decline that are now booming thanks to uh, offshore wind. And of course, you know, the fishing communities in those areas benefit from that as well. Yeah, you mentioned the fishing communities there. Um, artificial reefs have been one of the uh, the big positives uh, from developing offshore wind. Can you say a couple of words about that? Yeah, indeed. Look, offshore wind can and does have some very positive impacts on biodiversity. When you build an offshore wind farm, uh, there's no other disturbance of the seabed in that area. There's no dredging, there's no bottom trawling, yeah? So the seabed becomes cleaner which means you can develop artificial reefs on the seabed. You can do aquaculture 
the Netherlands, for example, is farming oysters now for the first time for over 100 years, thanks to offshore wind. Okay. The other factor is that on the foundations of the bottom fixed turbines, you get mollusks, okay, up to 40 tons of mollusks on each foundation. And that's great for fish stocks. Yeah. So we find that fish stocks tend to be quite high inside offshore wind farms. Now, when offshore wind started, most countries didn't allow any form of fishing inside the offshore wind farms. That's beginning to change. A number of countries are now allowing it, at least certain types of fishing, not the bottom trawling, but the passive pelagic uh, fishing that doesn't disturb the seabed. Uh, and as the wind industry, you know, we are big supporters of multiple use of the sea space. Yeah. And there's plenty of space increasingly between the turbines. You know, there's up to one kilometer between individual turbines in an offshore wind farm now, the new ones. So it's quite an unsuc- uh, unexpected positive, really, uh, going forward then. Indeed. At the same time, of course, you do need to manage um, any potentially negative biodiversity impacts. Yeah. So when we pile the foundations into the seabed, yeah, we put uh, what we call um, uh, bubble curtains, or we put uh, large um hoses uh circles of hoses on the seabed or they have holes in them they blow out curtains of air of bubbles that shield any sea mammals from the noise uh, that is generated by the piling of the foundation into the seabed that's quite fascinating uh, so uh, a wall of bubble literally yeah isolate. a circular wall of of air bubbles yeah that's yeah. blowing up while the piling is happening that's interesting um and now It's uh, this, of course, does take a lot of money. And uh, as you mentioned, that's quite the investments we're uh, looking at. Will we be dependent on subsidies to make this happen going forward? And where do you see that? No, no, we won't. Now, it's important to distinguish here between subsidies, governments paying industry to build and operate offshore wind farms and it being a one way exchange of money from the governments to the offshore wind industry. When wind energy started, including the very first offshore wind farms, that was in fact the deal. Yeah. The first offshore wind farms were built with fixed tariffs for the electricity that was generated from them. And those fixed tariffs were relatively generous. And at the time they had to be because offshore wind farm was expensive. Offshore wind was expensive. Yeah. Costs have come down. Yeah. And the costs of building offshore wind farms today, the levelized cost of electricity, as it's called, are uh, significantly lower than today's wholesale electricity market prices. And they're in the same ballpark as what were generally the wholesale electricity market prices before the prices rose this time last year. Okay. However, what you need still is what we call revenue stabilization mechanisms. Yeah. And what happens here is that governments run auctions, The industry bids into the auctions. The lowest price wins. If you win an auction, you've got a guaranteed revenue, say, for the first 15 years of the project when you're paying off your bank loans, yeah? Because you have to borrow a lot of money to buy the turbines and all the other capital expenditure that's involved at the outset, right? But uh, the government only pays you the difference between the market price and your auction price, If the market price is lower, if the market price is higher than your auction winning price, you pay the difference back to the government. Hmm. 
Okay, that's called a contract for difference, a two-sided contract for difference. And it is the mechanism that is now used in many countries in Europe to help finance offshore wind investments. And it's good for governments because it's cheap, because governments pay out some of the time and they get paid back some of the time as well. Okay, it's good for minimizing the costs of the offshore wind farm, because if you've got this clear perspective of stable revenues for the first 15 years when you're paying off your debt. You can go to the banks and you can borrow money and they'll be happy to lend you money because they'll know you're going to be able to pay them back because you've got a stable revenue for those 15 years. Okay. If you don't have that, then you've got to finance your investments much more with equity than with debt. And that is more expensive. And that puts up the lifetime cost of the wind farm. So with that in mind, uh, if we, um, Consider the subsidies uh, thing uh, a thing of the past uh, in a way, and that these new types of doing business within the wind industry is is changing that. Yeah, uh, you mentioned, uh, and you also represent the the whole of Europe really in in yeah. wind business. Um, we have a very volatile European political situation now. Of Uh, with all the troubles in Ukraine as well, um, and major energy insecurities. Where will it? Where does offshore wind fit into this? We know the EU is working now very hard on uh, reducing the dependence on Russian gas, for example. Where do offshore wind and and wind also in general, but offshore wind fit into that? Yeah. Well, the European Union is now committing itself uh, to have no imports of Russian oil, gas, or coal by 2030. A very important paper presented by the European Commission on this yesterday, the so-called Repower EU initiative from the European Commission. Um, This means accelerating the build-out of renewables, wind and solar. Mm. And for wind, it means both onshore wind and offshore wind. Okay. Mm. Now, The European Union already wanted us to have 450 gigawatts of wind farms in Europe by 2030. Okay, today in the European Union, we have 190 gigawatts. Okay, so we were already looking at a big increase. Now, as a result of the the new European energy policy, and I think we can call it that, of getting ourselves out of uh, uh, Russian energy imports by 2030, the EU wants us to add another 30 gigawatts to that 450. So we've got to have 480 gigawatts of wind energy in Europe now by 2030. Now, what role will offshore wind play in that? We have 28 gigawatts of offshore wind today. As things stand, we believe that uh, Europe in total uh, can expect to have 135 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. So that's quite... It's a big increase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's offshore wind already making a very big contribution to this new European energy policy of of no Russian energy. But um, going back to that, with uh, the offshore wind is being uh, constructed or developed uh, offshore uh, between countries for the most part. Um, And uh, connecting this all together. Mm -hmm. We see we're so vulnerable with the war going on and and where the energy actually comes from. So when we start to um, make ourselves less dependent on that and we move on to a more international uh, energy production, really, because we're doing this 
in between the countries and with the grids connecting and everything. Can we and should we think from a national perspective or should we think in a more European connected perspective? Okay. Nearly all of the offshore wind farms we have in Europe today have one single grid connection back to the mother country. There is just one exception to that, which is a wind farm that Vattenfall have recently opened in the Baltic Sea called Krieger's Flak, and it has a connection both to Germany and to Denmark. We call this a hybrid offshore wind farm. These hybrid offshore wind farms are a good thing because they enable you to pool both the generation and the transmission assets between two or maybe even more countries. You know, the Krieger's Flak wind farm could have a connection to Sweden at some point as well. Okay. Um, That saves money. That saves space in the sea. And it also improves energy flows between countries, which is important because if we look at wind, the wind is always blowing somewhere in Europe. And the challenge is to get the wind from where it's blowing to where it's needed. Yeah. And the more of these hybrid offshore wind farms we have, uh, the more that will help um, Europe operate as a single electricity, a single energy system with, you know, countries supporting each other on the supply and demand of, of electricity. And that's good. But I have to ask the question then, will it increase our electricity bill? No, no, it won't. No, no, no. That doesn't. Having more of these hybrid offshore wind farms does not increase the electricity bill. I should stress at the same time that these hybrid offshore wind farms that have connections to more than one country, they will only be the minority of our offshore wind farms. Yeah. Most of our offshore wind farms that we build will still have the same model as previously, namely one single grid connection back to the mother country. That's what we expect at least. But we will have more and more of these hybrid offshore wind farms. And it's possible that by 2050, up to one third of all of Europe's offshore wind farm will be in this hybrid model with connections to two or more countries. And there'll be all sorts of different models here. So Denmark and the Netherlands and Belgium all want to build artificial energy islands. Yeah. Uh, Denmark also wants to use Bornholm as as a natural energy island in the Baltic. And these energy islands will act as a hub for offshore wind farms that are located near to them. And you will have AC connections, AC cables, bringing the electricity to the islands, to the hub, and then DC connections taking the uh, the power to uh, the mainland. And these islands could have connections to, you know, two or more countries, not just to one single country. They could be connected to each other as well. Yeah, so that uh, it's uh, it's quite the signal to send into the Norwegian energy debate. Uh, at least, uh, as you know, that this is uh, is high on the agenda in Norway. Um, I think we could talk uh, forever uh, about this because it's very exciting and the potential is is great, and especially with the geopolitical situation we see now. Um, you will be. Uh, very uh, much in Norway going forward as well, talking about offshore wind. And and how do you see, to finish this off, how do you see Norway's role in this uh, in short? Norway is totally unique in Europe in that it's the one country that's already got 100% renewable electricity. Yeah. And Norway has lots and lots of potential and capacity for the further build out of renewable electricity. Yeah. Mm. There are lots of country 
countries around Europe that are already importing lots of energy from Norway. Gas. Yeah. And Norway is providing an extremely important service to the rest of Europe here. All the more important in the new political context, the new energy policy context in which we're operating, of course. But it's not just about importing gas from Norway. There are many countries around the North Sea that would very much like to import electricity from Norway. Mm. And they look at Norway and say, um, wow, you've got all of this capacity, all of this potential. Um, you can build lots of offshore wind. You have fantastic wind speeds, good sites in the North Sea. Uh, we would happily buy some of your offshore wind electricity off you. You know, this is good for Norway, good business for Norway. Yeah. And, you know, we've got real Europe-wide energy security challenges. And there are some countries around the North Sea that are far more challenged than Norway is in their wider long-term energy security piece. Yeah. Where is their energy going to come from? Take a country such as Belgium. It's about to close down its uh, nuclear reactors. That's the plan in 2025. Uh, very dependent on you know gas and electricity imports from uh, other countries. Uh, it's going to become even more dependent. Um, and for the energy security of Belgium, you know, and other countries around the North Sea, uh, Norway has a major contribution that it it could be making. And and I think certainly that is how other countries in Europe are looking at. Norway um, at the moment. Mm. Um, now, I, you know, I can't sit here and say, hey, Norway, come on, uh, do the rest of Europe a favor. Yeah. It, you know, the world doesn't try like that. <laughs> yeah. But um, there is demand out there. And where there is demand, then, you know, Norway has a role to play from which Norway can benefit. Yeah. Uh, nor uh, do I want to say, hey, come on, Norway, you can make money out of this? Because I don't think in the current climate that's the right sort of message to be giving. But I think you know what I'm saying, Inga. And, and with that short appeal, I might uh, maybe call it, um, I think uh, the message is clear. Um, and I think we uh, we can conclude this short but very interesting look into offshore wind and especially in Europe and uh, what you work with. And we look very much forward to hearing more from Wind Europe and other players within offshore wind uh, when we meet at uh, ONAS in Stavangen in late August. Uh, and I want to tell our uh, listeners that tune in before that to get the energy talks you need to keep you updated. Mm -hmm.